Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. just smile at me. So I have the privilege of bringing the word today, and I've heard it said that you should never tell the Lord what you'll never do, because he'll have you nevering. (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) So I'm going to give it my best shot. So we're continuing our Bread of Life series. In this series, Jesus first stopped at a pool of water in Bethesda and healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And once he stood up and walked away, Jesus walked toward a multitude who was hungry for bread and the bread of life. And miraculously, Jesus fed a city full of people with basically a sack lunch. Then he fed their souls the word of God. And that brings us to now our lesson on walking on water. So I'll begin by reading the account of this event in the book of John, chapter 6. Verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. This account can also be found in Matthew and Mark. So fear is a theme in this message today, and I want to share a story with you that will hopefully make it clear why. This is a true story about shipwrecks. Shipwrecks form the stuff of legend. One of the most well-known and researched shipwrecks came from the largest cargo ship in the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. For 13 years, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. Some photos make it appear to be two ships, actually, but it was just one. The Edmund Fitzgerald was an all-star. The ship and its crew made 748 round trips in its 17-year career. It was built to haul iron ore from Wisconsin to Detroit. But something happened on November 10th, 1975, that even the experts can't explain. Lake Superior turned from friend to foe and turned on the ship. Hurricane force winds beat up the nearly 30,000 ton freighter and the churning waves tossed it around like a ball. They were only 17 miles from the shore and on a calm day, they would have made that short trip in an hour, but this day was not calm. This day, the lake appeared angry. And by the end of the day, Lake Superior had claimed the lives of all 29 crew members and the largest ship on the Great Lakes. So shipwrecks form the stuff of legend because of the immense tragedy that they can represent. Because 
even the most experienced seafaring sailors can find themselves in grave danger, and sadly, even in the grave, when the waters turn angry and turn on a ship in the middle of the water. The Great Lakes turned on the Edmund Fitzgerald, much like the Sea of Galilee turned on the disciples' modest fishing boat. So the disciples had just come to the end of another wonderful, wonder-filled day. Jesus had fed an entire city with basically a Lunchable. So after he fed their stomachs, he fed their souls, and he preached to them. The crowd was restless, ready for a Messiah, and they just knew this Jesus was the king they were waiting for. But Jesus slipped out of the crowd and to the mountain before they could crown him king. He sent his disciples into a boat to sail to the other side of the sea, and he said he would meet up with them later. Well, okay, but in order to really grasp these stories, sometimes I have to kind of put myself into them. And and they're not just stories, you know, they're accounts, they're true stories. Um, So I imagine what it would be like to actually be there. And so I'm going to pretend that I'm a disciple and Simon Peter because I like his books. So I'll pretend that I'm him. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, if Jesus had said, all right, miracle done, I'm going to go this way, you guys go that way, I think I'd probably try to convince him otherwise, maybe let's not get separated because you're miraculous and you might do miracles on your way that way and something terrible could happen to us here and then if you're not with us, you know, what's going to happen to us? And maybe that conversation did happen, we don't know, but if I were Simon Peter, it would have. But, you know, God got his way. God's will happened, and Jesus went to the mountain, and the disciples went on their way. So as the disciples sailed, Jesus prayed in the mountain. So imagine the sun was setting, the moon was beaming, the night was perfect for another calm cruise across the sea. Some of the disciples knew about cruises because a handful of them were fishermen. They were rowing along with no concerns or cares. They were already in the middle of the water, halfway there. Then, without warning, they found themselves in the middle of a fishing boat, in the middle of a lake, but also in the middle of a hurricane. So in a matter of seconds, they went from a calm, moonlit cruise to rowing for their lives. Now, I've never been out rowing when a storm hit. Surprise. But I have been driving when a storm hit. And I don't know about you, but if I see a storm cloud, like in the rearview mirror, I'd try to like outdrive it, see if I can just get there before the deluge starts. Well, we have weather radar maps, so I can check the weather, and I can be like 99% sure that even if the storm catches me, I'm going to survive, because I can see the severity of the storm on the radar. But without knowledge of those things, if I look out and it's looking a little stormy, then maybe I would just want to stay home, wait it out, you know, just in case to be safe. But now I've driven through storms, and I've survived many times because I knew that I could drive through them, and I would survive. I already knew the end. So I can have confidence in similar storms that I'll make it to safety. So just like the disciples, this was not their first time in danger on the water. So I'm going to flash us back a little bit to Mark chapter 4, verse 37, when they've been in a storm before. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he, Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? 
And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He had calmed the storm with his command. They had seen Jesus do it. So on that day, they had simultaneous fear and faith. Fear that they would die in the storm. But faith that Jesus was their only hope. And what a paradigm that is in life, being simultaneously fearful and faithful. I think sometimes fear can come from just knowing too much. The disciples knew the dangers of winds and waves. They'd experienced it to some degree, being some of them fishermen, or they'd at least had friends or neighbors or friends of friends who knew someone who may have died in a shipwreck. So this is why we, in present day, should stay away from Dr. Google. If you have some symptoms, you start Googling it. Sometimes ignorance is more blissful. You know, you, you can let your mind wander, but the internet is a big place. <laughs> so then you come across, it could be something very minor all the way to something deadly, in fact. So it's fear-inducing to read about and dwell on all the terrible things that it could be. Um, another example is my niece. She was never afraid of a cruise ship until she learned about the Titanic. You know, the worst case tragedy of the Titanic, never mind the millions of successful cruises that have occurred, she does not want to go on a cruise because the Titanic 100 years ago. <laughs> well, the disciples knew a lot. They knew all the risks and dangers, but also that Jesus had performed miracles, but not as far as controlling nature up to that point. So we also have legitimate worries and concerns in life, right? So, so did the disciples. Sometimes everything appears that we have no control over the situation, and the worst-case scenario is an actual possible scenario. So, I don't know if y'all know, but I've become quite a cat lady. No shame. My orange kitty boy had escaped a couple years ago, and I was distraught, to say the least. He was my child. The whole shame cycle of everything I should have done differently you know, but we put up flyers, we walked around, we asked around, we even put his litter box and blanket outside, we prayed, I cried. So we were just doing everything we could think of. There were encouraging testimonials online of how others found their lost pets. Okay, so it, it, I knew it was possible to find my fuzzy orange needle in this entire earth haystack. <laughs> but a friend of mine, she offered me some advice, bless her heart. She said that when she's anxious, she tries to think, what's the worst that could happen? And it's usually not that bad. Well, she didn't know her audience <laughs> because I'm a thinker. <laughs> so, I mean, I could, I could think of the absolute worst that could happen, and that was that my beloved son of a cat had chosen to leave me and that he was then ferociously torn apart by a Florida panther. I don't know that that's not what happened. <laughs> so it wasn't a great mental picture to help get me through <laughs> that month. Um, well, the cat never did come back. And I am choosing to believe that a sweet lady scooped him up and loves him more ferociously than I ever did. And I'm past that grief now, but 
I say all that to say that's a simple example of having fear and faith at the same time. The fear kind of drove the faith in that case because, yes, the worst-case scenario does sometimes happen, but so do miracles. I needed a miracle, and I had hope for it. It didn't happen, but I do have more fur babies now. So flash forward to the disciples' current situation, pun intended. As the wind pushed and the sea churned, they thought back to the last time that looked like this time. What did we do? What did we do last time we were in a storm? And they remembered, oh, let's wake Jesus up. He'll stand up, he'll speak up, and the storm will calm down. He did it before, he'll do it again. Well, because when there's a precedent, you have some mental preparedness, and you have knowledge of the possibilities, and there might be greater faith because of all of that. But this time wasn't like last time. This time, Jesus was not asleep on the boat with them. He wasn't even on the boat with them. Jesus was on the shore. And I bet Simon Peter was thinking, if he hadn't argued with him before, he really should have to just stay with us, come with us on the boat. He would have said, peace, be still, Chelsea, I've got this, and I've got you. But that's not how it was going to happen this time. There would be fear with that realization. Jesus isn't here. So there is sometimes fear, even when we've seen the miracle and we've had the rescue. But next time's a little different than last time. Oh, man, how's Jesus going to get me out of this one? As we live for God, we'll discover that God is not formulaic. He doesn't do everything the same way every time. And that's okay. That just tells us he's God and we're not. And he knows what he's doing even when we don't, which is usually. Just because someone testifies to you to build your faith, you know, their motive is right, and they tell you what they did when they were in your situation, and then what God did for them, that doesn't mean that when you do the exact same thing and God doesn't do for you what he did for them, that, oh, God doesn't love me, or I don't have enough faith, or I must have sin in my life. It just means that God's not formulaic. He's not an input-output machine that always produces the same outcome every time you input the same thing as sister so-and-so. However, his character remains constant, creative, purposeful for individuals and for the entire kingdom. So we must look to him for rescue, but don't dictate how he'll do it. And don't even really expect how he'll do it, because we don't know. So God doesn't answer our prayers the same way every time. Sometimes we pray for healing for ourselves or someone else, and God miraculously heals. Amen. And at other times we pray for healing and we watch God miraculously give grace to live through the sickness. Amen. When God answers a prayer for someone down the row from us, but he doesn't answer our prayer like we hoped, God's still God, and God is still good. He doesn't love us less and love other people more. So this time on the Sea of Galilee would have been a great time for an encore of the miracle in Mark 4. I'm sure all the disciples were thinking it. But Jesus was a few furlongs away from them on the mountain. And isn't it funny how fear and insecurity can cause us to think up reasons why we're disqualified from a miracle? We limit God because, well, he's not in the boat, so... You know, he's over there. He's doing something else more important. And we forget that he's omnipresent. 
As the disciples worked their rescue mission, they were getting nowhere. The fishermen were nervous, so you know the tax collector and the physician were really nervous. (laughs) Way out of their element. (laughs) There's no math to do right now. (laughs) Um, Their skill set didn't include beating a storm with nothing but a paddle and a bucket. (laughs) It seemed like for every bucket of water they bailed out of the boat, the sky opened up and the waves crashed down and two more buckets poured into the boat. So try as they might. They just couldn't get ahead, and I can relate. And this was no fault of their own, just a fluke squall. No, they didn't grab the wrong boat, the one with the hole in it, right? This was just something that was happening to them. Sometimes it just, it'd be like that, right? (laughs) They did nothing wrong, and still the situation was dire. They needed rescue. You know, when you're in a tough situation, you do what you have to do to just get through it. So here's a story. I went on a family trip as a teenager. We went out on a little boat to do some snorkeling. And there wasn't even a storm, but the water was quite choppy. And me, having some challenges that I have, I started to feel pretty immediately seasick. I had my little pressure point wristbands on, and I'm sure I had taken some Dramamine, and I was like focusing on something far away that's supposed to ease it a little bit. But nothing was working. So on recommendation of our driver, our knowledgeable captain, he said, you know, some people say they feel better if they're in the water. (laughs) And I was hearing this through like a blur, like a wah-wah. Because I was just trying to keep breakfast down, you know. (laughs) Um, Well, next thing I know, someone, dad, not saying names, Someone picked me up by the life vest and just chucked me overboard (laughs) into the water, the source of my sickness. Just no no consent given, just chuck the whole child overboard. She's sick. I'm over it. I'm over it. Well, (laughs) I continued to be seasick, which was not a great experience for all the snorkelers. Um, (laughs) But in that case... We had tried everything, and it was worth a try. Let's try one more thing. Well, y'all talked amongst yourselves and said, we'll try one more thing. Um, And as miserable as I was, at least I knew I wasn't going to die. Like, seasick feels pretty bad, but I was going to survive this. I was going to get through it. We had to do what we had to do to get through it. And we did, and now it's a funny story. (laughs) Yay. So these disciples were in the unforgiving hands of a hurricane. They were rowing their little fishing boat for all they were worth. And although Jesus was not with them, he was watching them. Mark's gospel records this account with one of the most reassuring passages in all the word of God. And it's a passage we need to read and remember. And it's in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 48. It would be really easy to just read past this. But it says, he, Jesus, saw them toiling in rowing. When the disciples couldn't see Jesus, he saw them miraculously. From the mountain, on the shore, he sees you toiling. We need to hear that and remember that and let it sink in, pun intended, again. Um, When they couldn't see him, he still saw them. He saw them when they were calmly cruising along, and he saw them when they were fighting for their lives. He sees you working. He sees you rowing. Because what else are you going to do in crisis? Sit back and wait? No. 
You have to try something. Maybe the motivation is fear, sure, but working toward a desired end doesn't mean a lack of faith. In fact, let's read James chapter 2, verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So working, trying, striving, toiling means that you do have faith. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we all know it. Y'all can say it with me. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So working, trying, striving, toiling, it means you have hope in something you don't see yet. You're working toward it. And you know you won't accomplish it without God, but it doesn't really just mean sit there and do nothing. So a few weeks ago, I experienced fear and toil and faith all wrapped up in one little terrifying package. And I'll preface this with nobody died because it's going to get a little intense. So I was at work, and the intercom announcement said, lockdown, lockdown. Well, my students and I were at the bathrooms, but we ran back to our classroom and locked the door. We pulled the window shade, and we hid under our tables. It was everything I knew to do. Well, I was watching the staff chat on my phone for more information and calming some kids while I'm at it, you know, and shushing some other kids who were giggling. (laughs) But the staff chat said, not a drill. I was like, okay. I mean, we prepared for the drills. Okay, so I knew too much about things that had happened at schools when lockdowns weren't drills. And I thought, now we toil. I have to do something. Can't just sit here like a sitting duck. So a couple students helped me to prop a table up in front of the door because I had read that if there's an assailant, even the slightest obstacle can deter them. And I thought, okay, that's something. Okay, good. Glad we did that. Then the staff chat said the word gunshots. So then enters fear, you know, because gunshots and, and then all the unknown with that too. So I thought, how much faith do I really have in that door lock Singular door lock and singular table. So, okay, more toiling. Let's toil. I instructed the students to pile up in the closet with me, move stuff out of the way, and be quiet. And then came faith. Granted, yes, faith maybe should have come first. So I told the students a little bit. I didn't tell them about the gunshots, but I told them it's not a drill. We need to take this seriously. And I said, It's a Christian school. I said, I'm going to pray over you guys. And so I whispered prayers over them. You know, God, we don't know what's going on, but we're scared. And we need your protection. I've done everything I know to do. And I just pray that you'll keep us safe and give us peace in this situation. You know, I was taking it very, very seriously because gunshots. So the staff chat eventually said, all clear. And I was relieved. We get out of the closet and um, come to find out There was a veteran at the facility next door who was just shooting blanks, just, you know, practicing. And we were never really in any danger, but we could have been. So there was fear, toiling, and faith all wrapped up in that situation. And that's normal for the human experience. So we mustn't guilt ourselves when we fear. Just recenter with faith in God at the center of all of that. So we can look at this on a much larger scale. 
the lives of the, of the disciples. Miracles interspersed with fear-inducing storms. What an analogy for anyone's life, really. The whole gamut of experiences and emotions throughout a lifetime. All while the word advises us of this, to occupy until I come. Jesus, he could have told the disciples that as they parted ways, although that happens later in scripture. Jesus heading to the mountain, the disciples heading to the sea. Occupy, just do what you do until I come. I'll meet up with y'all. That occupy part is sometimes scary. I'll speak for myself because you know, it puts us in charge of our decisions and it keeps us accountable for outcomes. Okay, occupy, I have to choose the right boat, head the right direction, toil on the sea, put a big enough table in front of that door, hope a storm doesn't come because storms can be bad and they do happen. But there is a promise embedded in that statement. Occupy, not indefinitely, but until I come. He's saying that he will. He will show up. He is going to come. So it would have made for a great story if Jesus had come walking on the calm waters when they were as still as glass. The disciples would have applauded and slapped each other on the back. Wow, he really is something. He walks on water. But Jesus came walking above the water when it looked like the water was about to take the disciples under. In the midst of their fear and panic, all the rational reasons to fear... We know what science says about displacement and buoyancy, and therefore, we know too much. We know what happens when you get too much water in a boat. And we've heard about tragic shipwrecks. But despite all the rational reasons to fear, Jesus gives us many, more, many, many more reasons not to. But you have to know Jesus to know those reasons. And that's what we're doing here today. Every week, we're getting to know Jesus, and we're putting that faith into practice. And that's the real test. And it's an ongoing test that we're not always passing. Storms on the Sea of Galilee birth in a moment. When the cold weather from the mountains mixes with the warm weather from the water, they form squalls that have claimed the lives of even the most seasoned seafarers because many of the storms stir without warning. And it would be wonderful if all life storms came with a check engine light. We'd have fair warning before the squall hits and tosses our boat. We could even get out of the boat and get to shore, maybe. But life doesn't always come with a warning. Rarely does it, in fact. We Floridians are acquainted with storm preparedness here, with the frequency of hurricanes. We probably each have some items in a kit, maybe even a generator, just in case we're without the necessities for a few days. Usually, though, we have plenty of time to get prepared if our supplies are depleted, because we can watch it on the radar and the news. We have warning as we watch it slowly come toward us and then often, thankfully, slowly veer away from us. But even the most prepared aren't immune to tragedy because there's no amount of flashlights or batteries that you could have that would save you if you really got hit severely by a hurricane. Such is life. You got to prepare for everything, but still tragedies happen. And if you haven't needed Jesus yet, you're going to. Life storms are much like Galilee's storms. They strike without warning. Car accidents that claim our loved ones without warning. Divorce that claims families. Job loss and layoffs that claim our security without warning. Addiction that claims our freedom and our relationships without warning. And nobody's exempt. 
Not to paint your world gray, but that's exactly what happens in a storm. Everything turns gray, and then you just have to row for your life. But even when life surprises us and tosses us around, it doesn't surprise Jesus. He knows exactly what will happen and when. Just as he saw the disciples, he sees us. And we should follow the disciples' lead and look for Jesus in our storm. When the winds pound and the rain stings, look to Jesus. I don't think that Jesus thinks for a second. Why did they set sail today of all days? Didn't they know there'd probably be a squall this afternoon? No, I think that's our own inner dialogue. That's why some people isolate from other people and even from God when they face a storm. You know it's true. There's a measure of shame or embarrassment that we messed up again. We were existing in somewhat of a prideful state that we didn't need anyone and we could do it all. But then we get in a bind and reality strikes that we're not perfect, but oh, we should have known better. We need help again. Jesus has to come rescue me again. Sorry, Father, for the inconvenience. But we've really got that wrong. In Psalms chapter 22, verse 8, it says, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. We have to let him be our rescuer. He wants that. That's how he gets the glory. It's his delight. So we must humbly sit and occupy and wait and toil in the uncomfortable situations and let God be our rescuer. He wants to do that for us. He really does want to prove that he's our savior because he always has been. So as the disciples wrestled to steer their boat to safety, they saw a silhouette of a man walking on the waves. And that's truly something you don't see every day. People don't walk on water. This silhouette must be a ghost, they thought. Just when we thought the end of our life couldn't get any worse or weirder, here comes a ghost to haunt us. Um, they shrieked, and they were surprised when Jesus answered, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. I don't think he meant just don't be afraid of my man silhouette all looking like a ghost out here. I think he means I'm here. Don't be afraid, period. Just stop fearing. I'm here. Well, when Jesus showed up shipside, yes, he calmed their fears that he was a ghost, and he reassured them that he was present. Whew, that would be enough. But he pulled back the veil even further than he had pulled it back in previous passages, and he revealed something to them, and this was revelatory to me. He said, it is I, be not afraid. But the true translation is abundantly more powerful than those words. Jesus wasn't just telling them, Read the name tag, it's me. The truest translation reads, I am, period. Be not afraid. Jesus made the highest divine claim he could make. He didn't just come from God, but he was God who came in flesh. He identified himself as the God of the Old Testament who had introduced himself to Moses as the I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it says, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. This would be similar to saying Jehovah. The Jehovah that these Jewish disciples knew all about. The Jehovah Jireh, who had provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice. The Jehovah Rapha, who healed the Israelites of their deadly diseases. 
the Jehovah Nisi, who fought for Israel against their enemies, the Jehovah Shalom, who gave Gideon peace when he faced over 120,000 ruthless, relentless soldiers, the Jehovah Sabaoth, who stands at the helm of all of heaven's armies, and the Jehovah Ra, who shepherds his sheep to safety. That Jehovah was standing in the wind on the waves that threatened their very lives. Praise God. So there was a precedent for this situation that went much farther back than when Jesus was asleep on the boat. They knew of that Jehovah, the I Am, and he was there with them in the flesh. How mind-blowing that must have been. So this statement that Jesus made in Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and John 6 is one of the fullest revelations of Jesus' identity to his disciples and to us. Jesus is I am. And that Hebrew word for am isn't just a state of being verb the way we use it in English. We say I am and then we fill in the blank. I am here. I am hungry. I am Chelsea. But the direct translation, it just doesn't, the meaning doesn't translate directly. It means more like I exist, period. I am everything. I am alive. And it's true now and it's true always. The followers followed Jesus long enough to know each of the aforementioned Bible stories where God revealed himself in a new way to his people. And they knew if he could do that for others, he could certainly calm the storm for them, as he was actually there, present, even in body. Never lose sight of who Jesus really is. He's not just a baby in a manger or just a crucified Christ on the center cross. Jesus is I am, everything in between. And how greatly that should affect our faith over all the rational reasons to fear, because we do have them. Well, when we couple Matthew's account of this story with John's, we do have a more complete picture of what happened on the stormy sea of Galilee. So in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, Is it a spirit? And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, Wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. So Peter couldn't believe what he was seeing. Then when Peter realized Jesus was there and Jesus was I am, he asked to walk on the water with him. He threw one leg over and another leg over, and then it was time. Do or die. And the die part can be scary. But Peter let go of the boat and began to walk on water. And he and Jesus are the only two to ever use the sea for a sidewalk, especially in a storm. Maybe the thunder clapped or the lightning lit up the sky, but something caught Peter's attention. And he looked away from Jesus long enough to look around. And suddenly he began to fret and sink. But Jesus reached out and saved him. So I was thinking Peter really could have benefited from some blinders. 
So I researched a little bit about why people put blinders on horses. And, I mean, I thought I knew. You guys probably know. Um, blinders limit what the horse is able to see, and it helps them to focus. When they're in a race, such is life, similar to a race, there are crowds and even naysayers, other opponents or enemies, if you will. But blinders help to fix the eyes on the goal, the finish line. And it helps the horses to not get spooked by, yes, legitimately scary things. Now, we aren't horses, but I think you get that the principle is the same. You see what you're looking at. And that sounds obvious, but then you respond to what you see. So if we look to Jesus, he's full of all the reasons for faith, not fear. And if we need help walking by faith and not by sight, then we might need to limit our sight to only what we know about him. Another note about faith. There's a team building exercise called the trust fall. Do you guys know about the trust fall? In the trust fall, one person's blindfolded and the other stands behind them to catch them as they fall backward. And the idea is you can trust your teammate. Even though you don't see what's going on, you just fall backward. Well, and you hope you can trust them because there's no sight. You're blindfolded. Well, I saw a video of someone who didn't quite understand the assignment. And when the leader counted down for her to fall, her teammate was behind her, as he should be. But she fell forward, and she face-planted <laughs> because there wasn't anybody there. <laughs> so she trusted no one. And everyone at the same time, I don't know. But we can trust God. He, he's everywhere. Sometimes we're the ones that are doing it wrong, though, which is why we got to follow directions. Read your Bible. If you look at the reasons for fear, that informs your faith that there are reasons to fear. Sight will have you looking around at reality, weighing the odds, disqualifying your faulty self from miracles. Faith keeps your eyes on Jesus, the rescuer. Faith keeps you believing that Jesus wants to include you in his miracles. Faith has you looking for rainbows, promises to be fulfilled. Faith keeps you asking God, whatever you're doing, God, don't do it without me. Show me how. Show me that I can with you. When both Jesus and Peter boarded the boat, the storm calmed. Once again, Jesus demonstrated by walking on the sea and calming the churning sea that he commands power over nature, over science, his creation. Even the wind and waves obey him. They always have and they always will. In this event, there's not record of Jesus commanding the storm to cease with his words. His mere presence stopped the storm. Let that be reassurance that when we're listening for a word from God and one doesn't come, the sermons don't seem to pertain to your current storm. Or your Bible reading isn't really quelling the anxiety. God's presence is enough. This is why we keep praying and seeking and coming to the throne, immersing ourselves in worship music, listening to anointed preaching, promises in the word, because God is there and there's peace where God is within his presence. Whether there's a word to stop the storm or not, his mere presence will pull you through it. And how neat it would be to walk on water. Perhaps terrifying, but neat once you were successful. So there once was a young man named Jimmy who had heard a family rumor that his father, his grandfather, and even his great-grandfather all walked on water on their 21st birthdays. 
So when the day of his 21st birthday came, he believed that if they could do it, so could he. So off he went in a boat with his friend Eric. And when he got out in the middle of the lake, he got up, he stepped out of the boat, he fell into the water and almost drowned. Jimmy. The next day, Jimmy asked his grandmother why he wasn't given the same gift as the others in his family. She told him that his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather had all been born in February, not in August, as he was. Frozen water is still water. So try again in February, Jimmy, when you're 21 and a half. (laughs) Think about your own personal rescue story or stories. You may not have had confidence heading into the storm, but after the fact, you realized, wow, he was there. Jesus did that. I have a few rescue stories of my own, and it's interesting that this was this topic for this week because just a couple months ago, I really had the realization that God always rescues me, and, and it was humbling. You know, I had thought, I'm doing everything I know to do, figuratively bailing water, and the issue wouldn't break. The answer wasn't clear because I couldn't see the full picture, the future. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. What should I be learning through this? Is this a ministry opportunity and I'm failing? Or is it Satan's distraction and I'm succumbing? I knew I couldn't jump out of the boat yet because I didn't see Jesus there. And I didn't know if that's what he wanted. I didn't hear his clear direction like the last time something similar happened. He told me. I knew. He told me what to do. And how I longed for him to just tell me. But no, I continued. Though the toiling was exhausting... But through prayer, there was a peace and a deep realization that Jesus will always rescue me. Just keep going, Chelsea. So I continued in that truth. My thinking changed to, it's okay if this time isn't like last time. I'll wait and I'll look and I'm definitely going to listen for him while I toil. He's never early, but he just keeps on being God. Giving the grace to continue to toil until he speaks or shows up. And I use past examples to encourage myself that God cares, and there's just not an answer yet. And then one day, I just knew the answer. I knew exactly what to do, not because he spoke to me like last time, but because God, God was with me. And I knew, I just knew he would always be. He always is I am. He's a good, good God, and he gives answers. He gives release, and he gives relief in our time of need. Let's stand. I just have a closing comment. Jesus walks on top of what worries us. The doctor's diagnosis, the bills we can't pay, the fear of being forgotten. Jesus has power over all of those. No doubt precious people in our families and our church family can hear the howling wind and feel the stinging rains and the crashing waves. We wonder How long can we bail this water and stay afloat? But John has good news for us today, that the I am is here. He always has the power to calm the storm. But even if he does not calm the storm, he will be with us in it, and he will calm us. When we really realize whom we're serving, we will fret less and trust more. Jesus is I am, almighty God, and he's still with us, and that's enough. So will you all pray with me today that this word will just encourage us and be with us 
as we're in storms. Jesus, we thank you, God, for this word. Lord, we thank you for its truth, its everlasting truth, God, that you are the I am, the beginning and the ending, and God, you only give good gifts. And Lord, you want good things for us. Help us to increase our faith, Lord, and bring this message to our remembrance in times of struggle, in times of storms, God, where things seem insurmountable. Help us, Jesus, to see that you're with us and you're in control and we don't have to be. God, you calm the storms and you can calm us in it and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, we honor you. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.